Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Truth and Justice. This is your Friday follow-up episode for Season 6, Episode 36, Wrong is Wrong. In this week's episode, while I was investigating the potential links between Cineat Gonzalez, Oscar Garcia, and the murder of Jim Melgar, I ended up being led down a rabbit hole that revealed that Oscar Garcia was convicted based on what appears to be a blatant Brady violation by the Harris County District Attorney's Office. And that has generated a lot of questions uh, just for everyone's information, uh, Mike and I have been on the road all week, so we're we're probably a little less prepared for this than we normally are. We received a tip, and we had to hit the road on Tuesday. We just got back into the office. Today's Thursday, and we're scrambling to put everything together. This was not a planned trip, but it was something that had to be moved on pretty quickly, uh, and it required us to physically go somewhere. So with that being said, this Sunday's episode is going to be a listener call-in show. We used to do those often, at least a couple times a season. We haven't done one in a while. And while I was trying to scramble together and get all the information and write out a script for this week's episode, uh, it occurred to me that this might be a good time to hear from you guys, hear your thoughts, theories, and questions on the cases. And to be very upfront and frank with you guys, that gives us a little bit of a buffer to kind of catch up from this trip. So that'll be this Sunday's episode. I think it's going to be great. We've been putting out on all of our social media platforms that we're going to be doing this. If you're listening to this on Friday morning, you still have time. We're going to open up the phone lines at 11 a.m. Eastern time today, which is Friday. And that phone number is 269-224-2833. We'll also be putting that out on all of our social media platforms, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, when we're opening the lines and what the number is. So if you listen to this in the morning, you've got a question or a thought, you or you just want to chat for a minute, go ahead and give me a call uh, a little later this morning. And with all that being said, let's go ahead and get started, Mike. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications, and that's why yesterday I knew that you did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From something else, The Marshall Project and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, our first question comes from listener Lauren. 
Lauren says, you stated this week that the black hairs found in the closet by Jim weren't tested. Are they in evidence somewhere so that we could test them if we wanted to compare them to a potential suspect? Uh, one of them is, the other I don't believe is. And this is one of the things that I was starting to look into when we had to leave this week. Uh, but from what I've seen so far, Carpenter did not collect the black hair from Jim's body, uh, but the medical examiner did collect it. And I believe uh, from from what I've seen, just and, and really this is from listeners that were discussing this and putting excerpts up from some of the reports on the Facebook page, from what I've seen so far, it looks like the ME collected, or the coroner, whoever it was, collected the hair off of Jim. It looks like it was tested, and uh, there was not enough information, but I believe it said they couldn't rule out Jim as being the contributor of that. And some people on that thread they had some questions like, how could that be? If it was a long hair, how could it be Jim's? The thing about the hair on his body as compared to the hair that is posted on our website from the shirt sleeve is uh, we don't really know how long it is or if it could be a cluster of hair. So it's kind of a looped up group of hairs. So, you know, Jim's hair wasn't super short. You know, it's probably maybe an inch, inch and a half long. Um, if there's a couple of hairs that were together, it's, it, it almost looks kind of knotted and looped. So it's hard to tell if we're looking at one long hair or a couple of short hairs twisted together. But Jim wasn't able to be excluded. That doesn't necessarily mean that it was his hair. Uh, but that's my understanding from the short hair found or from the hair that was found on his body. Now, that the difference between that one and the other hair is the hair that is on the shirt sleeve above his head is absolutely a long hair. You can see, you know, it, it's probably a foot long and it kind of curls up on the top and curls on the bottom. You know, that hair is probably anywhere from 12 to 18 inches long. It's dark. It's black. And from what I've seen so far, I do not believe that hair was even collected. Okay, next she says, also, are we going to do anything about Oscar's Brady violation? She says, I understand that he isn't at all the focus of this case, but if someone is in jail based on evidence that isn't accurate, shouldn't we get involved somehow? Yeah, as I mentioned this week's episode, and I think from social media, some people didn't quite get what I was saying when I said it, it, was, a, it was a great personal dilemma for me, is, you know, on its face, as I'm looking at Oscar Garcia's criminal record, it looks like he was very likely, if not absolutely, involved in the home invasion that occurred in 2009, three years prior, and therefore probably was also connected to the one in Kingwood in 2012. Uh, and I say that for there, there's a few things I mentioned these in the episode that really connect those cases. Uh, one being obviously there was a black SUV as the getaway driver, but the big one for me was the walkie-talkies. That was that was a pretty specific mo, and I, it doesn't have to absolutely have to be connected to the two. But you know we see Oscar, you know on paper at least is connected to both of them. But you know when I when I spoke with Isabel, who was one of the the Kingwood victims. You know, she said that the, the entire time they were communicating with walkie-talkies to someone on the outside that was, the, the, I think they served as getaway drivers and lookouts for them. And in the home invasion that occurred in 2009, we see that they were, they were letting them know, the people on the outside with the walkie-talkies, when the police were coming. So the black SUV, the walkie-talkies all seem similar. The difference being that it, the, the attack occurred in 2009 during the daytime. But as you've heard me mention several times, you know, criminals, career criminals like this will typically evolve over time. You know, they, they, they realize what they did right, what they did wrong, how they could do their job better. And, you know, maybe that was when they got nabbed in that home invasion that, you know, maybe they decided the ones that got away 
decided that you know maybe we should do this at night. This wasn't a good idea during it doing it during the day because they they caught Oscar out front if he was indeed involved in the case. But with all that being said, it seems like if Oscar was involved, this was a brutal attack. The attack in 2009 in the Harris County district, the same district as, as Kingwood, uh, was brutal. I mean, they were they would beat the hell out of this, these women, or at least one of the women in the case, in order to get what they want. And the person on the outside on the walkie-talkie was the one telling them to do that. Now, I've reached out to those victims as well, and I'm hoping to hear from them. Uh, I haven't heard back yet, but I'd like to know a little more about it. One thing I do know is that those victims, they were also Spanish-speaking Hispanic victims. Uh, so we have this trend uh, between the Kingwood home invasion, the home invasion in 2009, and then, of course, Jim Melgar, who is Guatemalan and Spanish-speaking. Uh, he's bi- He was bilingual, but we, we continue that trend through there. But basically what I'm saying is that this Oscar Garcia, based on those reports, seems like a horrible person if he was indeed involved in that home invasion in 2009. I don't want to help somebody like that. I also don't know, and I can't say that he wasn't involved in the Kingwood home invasion. So what I found was a Brady violation that shows that they pushed him into a plea by not telling him that there was some exculpatory information that the the victims had identified someone else. That's a Brady violation. That's I guess some people would refer to that as a uh, getting off on a technicality. But that doesn't necessarily mean he wasn't guilty. It just means that the police or the prosecutor cheated in order to get his conviction. And so that was the dilemma is if he's really guilty, I sure as hell don't want to be a part of overturning his conviction. But at the same time, you know, this is you know the mission of our show. As I, I, I told someone on the, the fan page the other day uh, that was asking, you know, why are we going down these rabbit holes when this has nothing to do with these extraneous things that we're looking at have nothing to do with freeing Sandy Melgar. I had to remind that person that this isn't the free Sandy Melgar show. This show is truth and justice and our mission is exactly that. And that's why ultimately, and it was a, it was a, quite a discussion between me and Mike, like, what do we do with this? Do we just kind of just breeze by it and not get into it? But at, at the end of the day, you know, when, when we discussed it, it was like, look, what, what should we do? This is, we're, we're looking to see if there's corruption, if people have been wronged by the system. And that's what happened here. You know, whether, whether he deserved it or not, it doesn't matter. That's what happened here. So getting back to the question about what what is being done about it or what are we doing about it, I feel that I have met my obligation. I don't know if I'll go any further with it. Uh, a lot of this has to do with time and other priorities with the case that we're actually working on. But I, I wrote Oscar Garcia a letter in prison, and I, I let him know that we've discovered some information that may help with his case. Uh, I gave all my contact information, so... You know, it's up to him if he wants to reach out. I, I may write him another letter because actually when I wrote that, I didn't have all the specifics and, and let him know specifically what we found. But, you know, if he chooses not to write back, I feel like I've at least met my obligation, not only as the host of this podcast, but just as a as a concerned citizen as a, and as a human being to let him know what happened to him. And then it's up to him if he decides to do something with that. And then one of the other reasons I may write another letter to Oscar is because after I sent it and I did a little more research on the case, it occurred to me that he doesn't speak English. So I may try to send a, a Spanish translation to him. I mean, there's I'm sure there's people in the prison that could read that to him or help him write back. But just to be clear that, you know, I, I've gotten the message to him in a way that he can understand, I may send a little more detailed information 
translated into Spanish uh, since uh, because it'll be found in the police report that Jay Garcia with the Harris County Sheriff's Department translated in his interview with Oscar Garcia, who was the same person that translated, I believe, for Herman and Maria Melgar. So, you know, they, they wouldn't have a translator if he could speak fluent English. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Michael says, Wasn't there a bloody handprint found on the safe or the handle? That blood was never tested, correct? Can that still be tested against the DNA of Siniad? Well, there's a few layers to that. Uh, yes, there was blood on the back of the handle that was never swabbed or collected by uh, Maurice Carpenter when he was processing the crime scene. So the first thing is, is that still available for testing? Yes, the safe is still stored, and we can pull that DNA off of it. Uh, the question is whether or not it's been degraded enough that we can still get a profile. Based on some uh, training that I've just recently received, not training, I guess, but just a you know, conversation I've had when I went and interviewed a DNA specialist about another case, it seems like it, we should be able to still get a profile off of that blood on the safe. And then the other thing is, can we compare it against Cinead? The other issue is we don't have Cinead's DNA to test it against. Oscar Garcia gave a DNA profile. He gave, a, he gave swabs during the investigation into the 2009 home invasion. Uh, but Cinead, to my knowledge, has never produced a DNA sample for, for anyone to be tested. And all of the records seem to indicate that Cinead was deported. I think the, the more I'm looking now, it looks like probably when her prison sentence was complete and she was released, which would have been in 2018, that she was indeed deported to Colombia. And uh, I still don't have absolute confirmation of that. I did get a response back from ICE, who I mentioned in the episode I filed an open records request with or a FOIA request. And they wrote back and they they told me exactly what Robbie Chowdhury told me they were going to tell me, which is uh, we can't give you that information unless you have written permission from the person you're you're interested in, which would be Cinead. We can't share the information about their case with you. So I, I still don't have confirmation. Uh, however, in a more detailed background check, I do see that it is noted by Texas Department of Criminal Justice, which is where she was housed in prison, that she was it just says the words that she was deported. Uh, not just an immigration hold. So it seems that she's gone. So that's it'll be a difficult path to obtain her DNA, given that she's not in the country. And I don't think that we'll get any help with any law enforcement or anything like that without any credible reason to do so. You know, for example, if we get someone who who calls in a tip and says that they personally know her and they know for a fact she was involved in the home invasion, uh, and that's some information that can be corroborated. That may be enough probable cause to get our government involved to try to connect with the Colombian government, who does have, uh, thank you, John Hayes, actually, for listener 
John Hayes for looking this up for me. Uh, we do have a an, es- an extradition treaty with Colombia, so we we do work with them. Uh, so maybe it's possible, but I mean, it's it's it'll be difficult for sure to obtain her DNA. But uh, you know, that's got to start with something credible. You know, what we've looked at is just here are some similarities, and it sure looks like these could be the same people. But that's that's nothing in the criminal justice world. We we need something credible that we can sink our teeth into in order to move forward with an with an official investigation by the powers that be that may actually be able to obtain her DNA. Michael also asked, what is Cindy Ed's shirt size and does it match the shirt found in the jacuzzi? Well, I don't know her exact shirt size, but what I do know is she was almost the exact same size as Sandra. You know, Sandra was, I believe she was 5'2", uh, right around there. And Cindy Ed is, for a fact, 5'2". Sandy, I believe, is around 130 pounds. Cindy Ed is listed as, I've seen her listed at 120, 122, and 130 pounds. I've also seen her listed anywhere from 5'2 to 5 foot tall, but but Siniad and Sandy appear to be the same size, and Sandy has said that that she could wear a medium shirt, so that, that would seem to me that that shirt probably could have fit either one of them. John says, would it be a good idea to distribute flyers of the reward in the neighborhood where Isabella lives to motivate them to come forward with more information, or maybe even neighbors of theirs that might have seen something? Yes, that's definitely something that we want to do, and uh, more so. I mean that that that'll that'll that's a good idea. But the thing is, we know where at least Siniad was living at that time when this crime occurred, and it was nowhere near Kingwood. And I believe the you know the that that area was pretty well connected. I believe Isabel and her family knew most of the neighbors, and they I mean, they even had web discussion boards where they could talk about things like this. And no one seems to have seen anything or known anything about it. But what I would like to do with the flyers is get them out to, and we actually, um, listener Zach Weaver, who created the flyer right now, um, Liz Rose gave us a Spanish translation of the flyer. And Zach, as we speak, is putting together an alt version of the flyer that's written in Spanish. And we want to get so that they, Cindy had lived in an area known as, I hope I'm pronouncing this right, uh, but she lived in an area known as A-Leaf. Which, for my understanding, is is heavily populated Hispanic, at least at that time. So, you know, so sending out flyers written in English may not be our best bet. So, we're we're gonna we're doing two different versions. But the, the, we have a few addresses where Siniad and her husband lived about that time, and I think that that is going to be a more productive target area. So, what either I'm gonna have to fly down there and do it, or I guess this is a good time to call out any of you listeners that are comfortable and feel like safely you could go to these apartment complexes and pass out flyers. That's something that needs to be done. We need to get the flyers distributed because I I believe that there's someone out there that knows what happened and is willing to talk. It's going to be someone that, that knew the people that committed this crime were connected to. And, 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 and and again, that doesn't necessarily mean that that was Sinead, but I think that, we know that we have a criminal that did home invasions that lived in that area. I think that we should hit those apartment complexes and, and get these flyers out there to people that listing the reward and hopefully that'll trigger some people to call in. But it would it would certainly save us a lot of time, effort, and money if someone from the Houston area and the this would be the A Leave area is kind of in the west southwest part of, of Houston. 
that might be willing or maybe as a group would be would be safer. Not that you know we're we're just passing out flyers. It's not we're knocking on anybody's doors, but I think it'll be safer probably in a group um, that's willing to go pass out flyers. Please reach out to us. Um, you can you can get us either on the tip line, which is the same number we use for all of our stuff for Truth and Justice. That's at two six nine two two four twenty eight thirty three. Or uh, just shoot us an email to theories at truthandjusticepod.com, or you can message us on Facebook or Twitter or wherever you want to. Uh, but if you are willing to help or to take up the lead and, and help us distribute some flyers, uh, please reach out and we will get you the electronic copy. We'll, of course, we'll pay for any printing copies. I can even print them here and ship you a box of them, whatever we got to do. But you know, I, I really, we need to move quickly on on getting the information about the reward out there. Michael Hall did last week put together a really cool article and that's got a ton of views, but I don't know if we're hitting the right demographic. Uh my intention for later on this afternoon actually is to contact someone who does radio marketing um because we want to start getting some radio ads out there for this uh and and there's some specific mailings that I want to do. So we're really getting that reward going now in, in full force to see if we can generate those tips. But if if you're willing and able to comfortably and safely help pass out some flyers, please reach out to us and we can definitely use the help and it'll be greatly appreciated. All right. Kathy says, were anyone's cell phone records pulled for the night of the Kingwood invasion, including Oscars? If not, is it too late to do so now? I don't think it's too late. Uh, As far as I know, no one's cell phone records were pulled. Uh, But what I I actually asked Alison Seacrest about this and uh, a long time ago, and again, it's a weird time because you got to have subpoena power. And since the case is closed, that gets very difficult. But what I would like to see done is a tower dump uh, is what they're known as around at the towers that cover the Melgar's home around the night of the murder. You know, if we're talking late at night, there probably wasn't a whole lot of cell phone activity. And that can give you a pool of suspects. And basically what that is, is if anyone used their phone or I think maybe even connected to that tower during that period of time, uh, that we could get a list of numbers. And I think that would be, you know, for a while there, I thought that would be a, a definitely a great lead for us. Uh, unfortunately, now I don't know if it will be as great of a lead as we'd hoped because it seems like the the MO over dealing with the same people was to use walkie-talkies. And again, that that gives us a whole nother level of criminal sophistication. You know, to go old school with a walkie-talkie in the day of cell phones seems odd unless it's because that the the criminals that did this, so let's just talk about Kingwood where we know this happened and we know that Cinead was involved, that they were either smart enough to know that using their cell phone could tie them to the to the crime itself or just by happenstance, they thought that was a better way to communicate. But um, the fact that they may have been using walkie-talkies may diminish our possibilities of getting any leads off of that. But I definitely still think that it's something that should be done. I believe it's something that still could be done. I'm not positive about that. I've just I've talked to some people that uh, have worked in this field, and I got a lot of, yeah, I think they should still be able to dump the tower, get that information from a tower dump for that time. But again, that's that's a whole other process to get uh, the DA's office or a judge or whoever to approve a warrant to do so. Nicole says, you mentioned that around the same time, there was a string of home invasions. And she's referring to the time of the murder. She says, were there more incidents after Jim and Sandy's house or before? Was there a gap? They're kind of spread out. Uh, the, the string of home invasions seemed to have occurred in Kingwood the nine months before. And that's when I said that you know, the, the, the pressure, the heat may have gotten too strong in that area and they moved away from there. And, and I don't have a lot of details. One disadvantage of 
all of you being engaged in what we're talking about here in the podcast is if you look up Kingwood Home Invasion or Home Invasion in Houston or Harris County, everything is going to direct you towards the Melgars, uh, partially because of the media coverage that was already out there. Um, but also just because we've been covering this case, there's been so much, you know, Google attention to that case that somehow, and I don't understand how, but where the traffic goes is where Google's going to direct you. Um, so I've, I've had a real hard time finding any more articles, articles that I know that I read months ago. I can't even find them anymore. Uh, but in the forum that I've mentioned a couple times where the, the Kingwood victims were discussing the case with other people, and it's kind of a, a Kingwood area site just for residents of the area in that forum it's mentioned that there was there was enough of them people were confusing them so somebody had said something about the husband being in the closet in in the our victim isabel got on the on the forum and said no that you're thinking of this other home invasion that occurred a couple days later where the man was in the closet in ours he was not in the closet he was in the living room so it's based on on that and some of these other things that we've read. We know that there were several, and if you and if you look up, I mean, all the way till now, there's still tons and tons of home invasions that happen in Houston every day when people are home, which is one of the reasons it was so mind boggling to me when Colleen Barnett came here and said, you know, it doesn't make sense for someone to break into a house where people are home and awake. I mean, it literally happens every day in Harris County, and surely she was aware of that. But but as far as as when they occurred and was there a gap, there was definitely the Kingwood home invasion in February 2012. There was some more in Kingwood shortly there before and after then. And then there's just several throughout the that period of time between the Kingwood home invasion and the Melgar's home invasion. There were some after. They're all over the place. And there were several that we, again, we identified months ago where people were, in fact, home when the home invasion occurred and were tied up and, and similar valuables were taken. So there definitely was, it would seem to me, a crew of people that were that were doing this uh, regularly, that were invading homes with people home, tying them up and taking their valuables. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to. Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Gerald says, is there any thought that Oscar Garcia would talk to a private investigator to roll on Cinead and at least give a direction to go? He says, I know his testimony would be shot down due to the circumstances, but maybe he would hate her enough to give potential leads. It's possible. I, I don't think that if Oscar Garcia... The term he used was rolled on Cinead. I don't think that it would be discarded, but it definitely would be called into question. Oscar Garcia's credibility would definitely be attacked by by the the opposing side if if he were to go to trial, if Cinead was to go to trial for this, uh, because certainly he would, could be motivated. He's got you know she flipped on him, so maybe he's going to flip on her. But you know and that's what we're looking at with the with the, everything from the tip line to the investigations we're doing here on the podcast, some of the stuff we have to do behind the scenes, is is give us a, a clear direction. You know, I think that the Kingwood Home Invasion and that crew is a good lead, but it's we have no idea if we're going down the, the right direction. The only way to figure that out is to continue investigating it. Uh, but but if someone gave us a tip, if someone called us and said, yes, I specifically, I know this person, I know this happened, I talked to them, they've talked about it to so-and-so, and we can start corroborating that 
that can give us a clear direction on where we need to be going. We have another question about Oscar Garcia. Listener Kelsey wants to know if you were going to hook him up with the Innocence Project or let him know to get an attorney. Uh, like I said, I've, I've let him know, and I'm going to make that a little more clear to him, uh, what happened. And of course, he, he should get an attorney. As far as the Innocence Project goes, no, uh, they wouldn't, they wouldn't take this case from my understanding. Um, I haven't had a chance. I actually was texting with Allison Clayton this morning. So hopefully I'll talk to her this afternoon, uh, about a, another matter. But from what she's told me before, the Innocence Project will only work cases where they truly believe that the person is actually innocent. Uh, in this case, we're dealing with just a Brady violation. There's no indication that he is actually innocent of the crime. He pled guilty, so this wouldn't be a case for the Innocence Project. Kim says, I've been thinking about reasons the Melgars could have been targeted and have some questions. Her first couple questions are, is there a photo of the neighborhood? How many homes were decorated for Christmas? And could the living room be seen through the windows? Yeah, so in the uh, that was actually brought up at trial by Max Seacrest, that if you, in the, in the photo down the street uh, the night of the Jim's body was found, what you see is that most of the houses on the block are all decorated even on the outside for Christmas. We see Christmas lights everywhere, and the Melgar home, of course, with them being Jehovah's Witnesses, was not decorated for Christmas. So the house would have definitely stood out in that sense. Uh, as far as could you see inside, it doesn't appear so unless, you know, after home invaders broke in, they closed blinds. But from the outside, the windows on the front of the house one of the windows looked into Liz Rose's bedroom. Uh, you know, it was her, I mean, not her bedroom anymore, but her old bedroom. Uh, and then the other window uh, would just be the, the windows by the door that are part of the door. And in that one, you could see into a little bit of the living room. So, of course, in that one, you could see into, into a, a good portion of the house if the blinds were open. But it appears that all of the blinds were closed. Next, she says, did I hear or read correctly that none of their business records were really disturbed or taken? I would think a medical billing business would be a goldmine for identity thieves. What relevance do you think this might have? I think just like the walkie-talkies speak to the level of criminal sophistication and maturity, uh, I think that the, the fact that business records weren't taken speaks to it as well, but on the other end. So it kind of leaves us with a bit of a range. You know, we see, especially in the guest bedroom, where it appears that if this was, in fact, home invaders, which, as you all know, I believe it was, they opened up cabinets to see what was inside, and all that was inside was piles of paperwork for the medical billing company, and it, it, none of them were stolen. In fact, there's like a piece of metal sitting on top of a stack of the papers. Uh, so, you know, that wasn't something that was done. Now, a more sophisticated criminal uh, that's doing more than just pawning stuff for cash would would see that exactly the way you do, which is, you know, that's amazing for, for identity theft. They could have taken a stack of papers and, and opened up credit in, in a whole bunch of different people's names. They probably had their name, address, social security number, date of birth on a lot of those records. But the fact they didn't do that uh, would indicate to me, again, if this was, in fact, home invaders, that they're just not quite that sophisticated. They're not, and Jim Clemente would say that kind of speaks to the maturity level, too. You know, as someone who's very criminally experienced and is usually a little older, more mature, is looking at more big picture stuff. And that's part of the reason why in his profile, he profiled this to these are these are probably younger people in their in their 20s, maybe early 30s. And they have some level of criminal sophistication. They've probably done this before. But as he said, they probably have also made mistakes before and they're evolving over time. And really, it's a as, as a thief, it's a big missed opportunity because they're looking so much on the short term uh, that they didn't think about or realize that there were some long term 
and much bigger picture items that they could have taken. Lily says, I still want to know more about Liz's ex and the friends who Sandy said had stolen from them at their other home. I can only assume this is something you might have in the chamber to pull out during the alternate suspects discussion. Yeah, we definitely are. I mean, I haven't, I, I, I can tell you to this point, you're pretty much hearing the investigation in real time as we're doing it. And as I mentioned at the front of the episode, that's part of the reason why we're doing the call-in episode today, because we had to be on the road chasing down a lead. We need some time to kind of catch up from that, because you guys are literally hearing things as we're finding them out. So I haven't done a lot of investigation into Liz's ex-husband yet. I've done a little bit in these friends, uh, but that is definitely coming. You know, we're going to, I think probably pretty soon, uh, we're going to be drawing to a close with the investigation into Oscar and Sinead, unless something new comes forward in a tip, but I'm not going to keep beating a dead horse with that. And then, you know, some other areas that I know for sure we want to cover. I want to look into the neighbor who I've been calling Randy and then also looking into the Liz's ex and, and that group there. So that, that, that definitely will be coming as we move forward. Keeley says, can you clarify what investigative steps and with what results were carried out to ascertain whether any vehicles drove onto the street where the Melgars lived during the relevant time period? Nothing. I mean, they there was obviously the neighbors were canvassed and there was the security footage across the street. But what we learned from that camera was that it only covered the top portion of their own driveway. You would want to look for things like, you know, even headlights coming in. But the way those security cameras typically work is they're motion activated. So if it's only pointed at their driveway, it wouldn't have picked up anybody driving down the road. So things that should have been done was to canvass all of the houses, even in the, the surrounding streets to see if anybody had camera footage of the road itself. And then again, that cell phone dump would have been a good step, I think. Uh, but none of that was done. So we have no idea if anybody was driving down the street that night. Jennifer says, regarding the Kingwood burglary, as well as the other burglary mentioned in this episode, it seems that the weapons of choice in these burglaries were guns. Yet Jamie was killed with a knife. In trying to make a case that the same people responsible in Kingwood and the other burglary may have been the same ones that broke into the Melgar home, I have trouble with this fact. One can make a case as to why a criminal would upgrade his weapon of choice from a knife to a gun, but I find it hard to find a good reason for why a criminal would downgrade from a gun to a knife. What are your thoughts? Again, as I mentioned in the episode uh, either this week or the week before, the people in the Kingwood home invasion and in the one a couple years earlier had guns. But what has never happened in any of these home invasions is that anyone fired a gun. Typically, in situations like this, that gun is an empty threat or a worst-case scenario if they have to use it because, if you're, especially if you're doing it at night and you're trying to get in and out without alerting your, anybody in the neighborhood to your presence, the last thing you want to do is fire a gun. So, so, so someone could be holding a gun and still choose to actually attack with a knife. I guess that's something to think about, but a, a bigger picture is that, remember, we don't know. We don't know if the people in the Melgar case had guns or not. All we know is that they did have a knife. Keith says, Did I hear you right that they presented a photo lineup to the Kingwood family, but a single photo of Oscar to Sinead? If she only gave them his name initially, I think it's telling that they weren't confident enough to present her with a photo lineup to identify the person she was talking about. Uh, that's a good point. You did hear me right, but also keep in mind we don't have the full set of records. So we have a summary report that says, you know, just in the probable cause document, that Sinead identified his photo. It doesn't say that she was shown a full photo lineup, but it also doesn't say that she wasn't. I'm hoping uh, Brian Rose with Harris County, who is working on this production for my open records request, is out of the office this week. So I'm hoping by early next week I'll have that information. He said that he'd already ordered the files, 
Uh, he seems to be trying to work pretty quickly to get them out to me. So I'm, I'm hoping by the time we record next week, I'll have more of those answers for you. All right. And listener Kimberly wants an update on Kathleen Zellner's involvement in this case. Uh, not a whole lot to update. She's working. She, remember, we have the secrets that are still working on the direct appeal. What Kathleen Zellner is doing is is working on proving a case for actual innocence, uh, which would be the next step, or this step could be skipped to go to that one if we find concrete evidence of Sandy's innocence. So all, all I know is that she has met with the prosecutors and she has received their approval to do a bunch of new DNA testing. I believe that DNA testing has is in progress. And she's working with some new experts, so she's still really kind of working behind the scenes right now uh, because the the work she's doing isn't for this stage of the process, which is the direct appeals. Stephanie says this is more of a thought than a question, but after hearing about the decision in Adnan Syed's case and having watched a few docs about other wrongful conviction cases, I wonder if highly publicizing cases actually ends up doing more harm than good. What do you think, Bob? I don't think so. For, for starters, I mean, the judges, maybe it does affect the ruling, maybe it doesn't. It shouldn't. Legally, it shouldn't have any bearing, and they have to support their rulings based on the law. And in Adnan's case, it appears to me that the ruling was correct in reinstating the conviction because the the law seemed pretty clear that you couldn't he couldn't raise this cell phone issue after he filed his initial, his initial brief, which, as Colin Miller pointed out on the show here, was, you know, a, a mistake, and, it, and it's a pretty clear claim for a, an ineffective assistance of post-conviction counsel case. But the judge wasn't wrong there. But what you have to look at is the other side of this. Adnan's appeals were denied. He lost. The only reason Adnan was given the hearing in in February of 2016, the the appeal that he actually won that has led us to this this stage of the game where we're at now, is because of the media attention. There was two issues there that are kind of bouncing back and forth. Which one is the winning issue? One was Asia McLean, who was dead in the water as far as a witness until Serial, when she was interviewed and then listened to Serial and realized what Kevin Urich had done. That's when she came forward and agreed to testify. So without Serial, we never hear any more from Asia McLean. And then we have Susan Simpson with the Undisclosed podcast that found the facts cover sheet that showed that the incoming calls could not be used for location data. That all came from the case being highly publicized. She listened to Serial. She started doing her own research. She broadcast that on the website. She connected with Adnan's attorneys, and that got brought in. So without all of the public attention, Adnan would have never had the hearing to begin with. Okay, and our last question comes from listener Kelly. She writes, not a serious question, but do you and Mike listen to any podcasts for pleasure or to gain knowledge for ongoing cases? Any favorites other than those already mentioned on the podcast that you guys would recommend? We actually we were on the road quite a bit and we did some some listening. It was uh we we listened for a lot of reasons. You know, we we were actually were listening to a couple of different podcasts for tips on production actually this week. Yeah, I mean, you can learn a lot about how to do your show differently and what other shows are doing right and also what they're doing wrong and kind of compare that to your production. And I took a lot from not only through the technical side but for listening pleasure. I really enjoyed Dr. Death and um, drawing a blank on the Dirty other one, John. Dirty John. Yeah, those were really good productions. Yeah, we listened to all of both of those podcasts, which gives you an idea how much time we spent on the road this week. Uh, but from beginning to end, we listened to Dr. Death and Dirty John. And, 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 and again, Dirty John was when I'd listened to it before, 
I know more about the case now, so it was still interesting to listen to it again. I had never heard Dr. Death before. That was, that one was really compelling. The production quality was great on it. Um, but yeah, we we, we kind of listened to the Dirty John again. One, just for production tips. I wanted Mike to hear how they do it. Also, we've got another project in the works that uh, may be along those lines. So we we kind of wanted to hear about the production, but we both were were gripped by the the podcast. Yeah, and let me be real. I don't really listen to a whole lot of podcasts. I know I work in this industry, um, and uh, you know this is my job. But as far as pleasure activities go, I don't partake in a lot of uh, podcast listening. This is the time for the truth to come out. But I'll say that I was really taken by those two podcasts I mentioned earlier, uh, way more than I thought I was going to be, and they were really, really entertaining. Yeah, it, they were great, and and this is the time for the truth to come out. Mike doesn't listen to our podcast. No, that's true. I don't. <laughs> he hasn't heard. So, and I know that, of course, he edits it, so he listens to it, but we realize our process is I research, write, record, Mike produces during the recording, then he edits the vocals, and then we send it off to Shane Yoder, who puts all the music into it, does the final sound engineering, and so that's the finished product, and, and you probably haven't heard a finished product of our podcast in years, Mike. Yeah, unless it's something we're comparing, I, I really won't. I mean, you know, if, I, if I'm sitting there with a, with a raw episode and I'm editing it for a few hours on end and then it comes out the next day, I'll be honest, one of the last things I want to do is listen to it again after spending so much time with hear the my content. Sweet, hear my sweet, sultry voice in your ear. Yeah. Right. Okay. Um, well, thanks for that question. Thanks, everybody. I've actually got a, a, a scheduling conflict coming up right now, and so I got to run, and that was the last question, right? That was it. All right. So, guys, thank you so much, and uh, remember, if you're listening to this in the morning, 11 a.m. Eastern Time today, Friday. We're going to open up the phone lines, 269-224-2833. If you call and get a busy signal or voicemail, just keep calling back throughout that time because obviously we, we don't know. You, we're not live. So um, you know, we're just going to keep taking calls as we hang up one front after the other to put out this week's episode. It's going to be a listener call in. And thank you guys so much for all of your support and listening and putting up with our crazy schedules. And uh, hopefully enjoy this Sunday's episode where we're going to hear from you. Thanks, everybody. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Mike Bussing is our executive producer, and all music for the show was created and composed by PutThemInASong.com. Thank you to Amanda Meyer with Willow Photo and Design for designing and creating our Friday follow-up logo. And all of our font across all of our logos and banners was created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, Truth and Justice Pod, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. Thank you to our transcription team, Rachel Timberman, Natalie Alicia, Pamela Westby, Katherine Chrisman, and Jen Reese Incandela. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $3 a month, and we have reward levels on Patreon that include access to behind-the-scenes videos of the tapings of our Friday follow-up episodes, Truth and Justice Army t-shirts and hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a 5-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. And if you have a new case that you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, truthandjusticepod.com, just click on the case submission button and fill out the form. 
And the most important thing that you can do is engage in the investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. For all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter. The show's handle is at TruthJusticePod, and my personal Twitter handle is at BobRuffTruth. And for more personal interactions, feel free to follow me on Instagram at TruthJusticePod. Don't forget, we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, we're signing off. I'm Bob Ruff. And I'm Mike Bussing. And this has been Truth and Justice.